Welcome to the Functional Football Podcast, where we talk to leading football coaches from around the world about youth football development. Today's conversation is brought to you by functionalfootball.com.au and is designed to help you improve your coaching. We speak to the best coaches who share their insights and lessons they've learned about coaching youth football. Here's your Functional Football Podcast host, Luke Harris. Welcome to another episode of the Functional Football Podcast, where today we're joined by Mark O'Sullivan. Mark is a UEFA A-licensed coach who works with 8- to 12-year-old players at professional club AIK in Sweden. Mark is also a coach educator, currently completing a PhD in research and founder of the best coaching blog on the internet, Footblog Ball. Today, Mark will be talking about one of those blogs, Designing a Learning Space, football interactions. Mark will also be talking uh, about a number of other things related to youth development. Mark, first of all, welcome to the show. Uh, You currently work for AIK, a professional club in Stockholm, Sweden. Can you tell us a bit about your club and your role there? I work in AIK, which is a Premier League club in Stockholm. The senior team play at the National Stadium here. Um, I'm also a coach educator delivering the first few, uh, first two levels, I think, of the new Swedish FA coach education curriculum. And I'm doing a PhD in, um, with Keith Davids in, uh, sh- through Sheffield Hallam University about, it's basically about my work within AIK, how I, um, my PhD is actually embedded in my work. At AIK, I work with youth player development across many ages, mainly focusing on the age groups of 8 to 12, but also um, I do coach mentorship, coach education, work with parent education, and um, also together with my colleagues there, we've uh, set up what I do believe in terms of football is Scandinavia's first research and development department within the club. So that's basically my role in, I guess. <laughs> it's, it, it cuts across many domains. Excellent. Quite and a compl- quite a complex one. And uh, you also have a blog, um, Football Blog Ball. Can you tell us a bit Foot about... Blog Ball, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You know, a couple of years ago, I decided to, like... I felt very motivated to really dig deeper into ideas of learning. And I thought probably a good way to do this is start to write a blog. So I started kind of doing a lot of research on my own. Um, You know, mixing experiential knowledge with the knowledge in, in the literature that's available, academic knowledge. And um, in some way, trying to bridge that gap. And uh, it's really just uh, (laughs) quite quite a selfish reason I started. It's just to record my own personal learning journey. And so that's what it is. And it kind of seems to have grown a life of its own now. So I'm quite grateful for that. (laughs) And speaking of your blog, that's kind of why I wanted to have um, this chat with you. Because I actually came across one of your recent blogs called Designing a Learning Space, Football Mm -hmm. Interactions. 
And in the article, there were some amazing insights, and I'd love to take this opportunity to discuss the blog in more detail. Obviously, the listeners can find your article through your website, which is footblogball.wordpress.com, but I want to get into a deeper discussion about the ideas you've discussed in this blog in particular. Uh, firstly, you preface the article with the typical argument of learning football, that often people say, in order to learn football, you must know your ABC before you can learn to write, and you shouldn't, or should you try to teach calculus to a student without first learning basic math? So, which I've I've, I've seen many times on Twitter, um, and in other blogs, what is your response to this argument um, not being relevant or contextualised for a football example? Mm. I think it's quite natural that people would suggest these arguments because in general, and I include myself in this, we're quite lazy when it comes, humans are quite lazy when it comes to <laughs> argumentation for something. Um, it sounds logical, it sounds perfect, it sounds great, so it must make sense. Um, when really comparing learning in, a cl- in mathematics in a classroom environment, is it doesn't really elucidate that learning that happens on a football pitch with children. I think the example I gave was, yes, we know in mathematics that 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's a... That's a fact, and it's you know it's quite quite a cognitive way of learning. But when we when we work with children in sport, that's more perceptual motor learning, which also includes the cognitive in there. But really, in this uh, it, within sport, two within you can say perceptual motor learning or in, in a child youth sport, two plus two rarely ever ever equals four and it's there are no real clear facts there is no exact fact on how to to pass a ball there is no exact fact on how to dribble it's all depends on the context the situation etc so we don't really perform the pass the exact same way twice ever in a game situation we don't do that and we actually can't do that either biologically so while 2 plus 2 is a fact in maths, that it is 4, in perceptual movement learning, it's not really a fact. And I think, you know, I, I, it kind of goes, and it, it's really surprised me. I've, I've seen, I was at a Danish Academy presentation in Sweden last year, and they presented this as an argument for why we should stop with, um, uh, we, they, we need more explicit instructions that, that we should, because you explicitly explain 2 plus 2 equals 4 to uh, children in maths, we should use it in football as well. And that uh, guided learning, etc., is of no use. And that was their argument for that we shouldn't use guided discovery. When guided learning in mathematics and guided discovery in sport is not the same thing. They're actually not even probably remotely related. So th- there's lots of these lazy arguments. And yeah, I mean, I guess 
the reason why I put that at the start is I'm always there's such a polarization in in a child youth sport about how we should do things and what's best that really what we need is better questions and more critical thinking to have more informed opinions okay so if you if you speak about uh, better questions and um, if we tie that to learning environments when you're designing learning environments in your role at AIK, um, what principles and concepts do you and your college colleagues use to uh, create learning environments? Okay, um, well, first of all, as a preface to this, I'd, I'd like to say that AIK in early 2017 removed the early selection, uh, the early academy selection. They used selected eight. Now that has been removed and the academy system will start working around the ages of 13 now. Um, so teams are formed uh, around social groups, schools, geographical reasons, etc. So um, it's you know it's quite it's quite a brilliant challenge actually because you're working you really really truly are working with the non-linearity of human development when when teams are formed like this, anyone can pick the best eight and nine-year-olds. You know, you don't have to be any expert in football to see this. Um, but sadly, the best eight and nine-year-olds does not imply the best 11 and 12-year-olds. So um, through our research and development department, we, we've developed working with the rich experience and knowledge in the club and working with the research into human learning and sport. Um we you could say that we view player development from what's called a more ecological perspective. That implies that it's grounded in a theoretical framework of ecological dynamics, but we don't really need to go into this. So in AIK, we ask, what is football? So we see football as a complex adaptive system. They're uh, actually complex adaptive systems. Uh, social coordination, which is the synchronization of rhythms, roles, and values, and, and football interactions with a think we'll come into to later so all this informs what we call a constraints-led approach and I, I think you've probably heard of this actually it's been it's many many coaches in Australia implement this so this is the, um, the the three constraints of individual environment and task and these constraints they don't operate in isolation they interact over different time scales so but what's really important with adopting a constraints-led approach is that there is a clear understanding that this is not small-sided games or game-based session design. This is a common misinterpretation, and it's often based on this noble idea that the game is the teacher. And it's not really true, as this can in general lead to passive coaching. So if you consider the three constraints of individual environment and task, then it should... We should understand that implementing a constraint-set approach in childhood football requires a deep understanding of the sport and skill learning, the individual on, as a socially, cultural, psychologically, and the environment, how we design training and what we call the macro uh, environment, the macro form of life, the social, cultural, historical landscape, which influences. And, and that in Australia... 
the social uh, cultural historical landscape in Australia and that and in Sweden is totally different. So th it's really important we consider these when we are working uh, with our player development. Um, I hate the ideas, programs and models, but I think you understand what I mean. Um, yeah. So, in, so it, in order to successfully implement a constraint set approach and shape the landscape of player development and youth football, and a, a good understanding of eco, ecological dynamics is is needed, as as these ideas then, for us, inform what's called um, a non-linear pedagogy. And these are quite the guiding principles for uh, how we design training. So nonlinear pedagogies are design principles, are, are informer design principles, which is representative learning design. Does the task we are doing, is it representative of the game? Does it feel like a game? Is it does it, does it feel like something that actually happens in a game? Is there is it is it representative? Uh, we keep, we aim to keep perception and action coupled, and we don't separate them. And this is quite a problem. Now, it is very very important we don't turn this into an isolated technique versus skills debate. But yes, there is a landscape there we need to navigate around. But the trouble I have with this is that the default setting is often the isolated approach that we must. Again, we're back to the you must do you must learn what two plus two is first before you go on further. Uh, so this perception and action couple, and you know, children do this naturally. Children play tag games. I my three-year-old plays tag games in his uh, kindergarten with the other three-year-olds, and he knows he looks and he runs, and he looks around and he sees the guy that's trying to tag to him, and he runs into space. So that's perception action coupling. Children will do this if you give them the opportunity to do it. So um, that that's quite an important concept, not to separate perception and action. Then and we have repetition not, without. I was just going to say, for that example of the tag game, it's not something that the teacher explicitly teach teaches exactly. your your child, is it? It's something that no. they naturally do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. they naturally do. Or, they just work out themselves because, yeah, to survive in the environment, you have to do this. You, That's the solution. How do I survive? And it's kind of, I think we can learn a lot about football from uh, coaching football, football to children from this. Then there's repetition without repetition. Uh, Nikolai Bernstein's wonderful idea, which is about movement variability instead of repeating the same movement that we should have more variation in our repetitions. And the last one would be promoting external focus of attention, that the focus is on the information. We are encouraging children to uh, discover the relevant information in the environment to to uh, solve, the uh, to find a solution. And again, in the tag game, that would mean that the relevant information is what are the boundaries, where is the space, and who is chasing me. So that's kind of how we design. And then, but but for coaches, what what are, what we like to do is. We do, in possession, we are trying to design sessions where players search, discover, and exploit gaps and space using what we call football interactions, which is pass, dribble, dribble, uh, drive, running off the ball, tackling. And then in recovering the ball, you are mis minimizing these opportunities for the team in possession. So I guess mm -hmm. you could probably figure from this, we're kind of also moving away from theme-based training 
you know, which is very common in coach education curriculums, uh, where today we're going to learn, we're going to do passing, today we're going to do dribbling, but that's the solution. You've already given away the solution. We're more about what we try to propose. We, de we design a learning space where you shine a light on passing, but, you, but the players are also invited the affordance of dribbling the ball as well. So it gives more autonomy to the decision-making. Uh, that's a great summary, and it's very detailed. And, and you just brought up a few things that I'd like to, to touch on. Uh, and the most recent one is theme-based sessions. I remember going to my first coach education course, and mm. there was an explanation of theme. And it was, again, I guess a lazy idea in that it made sense and it's logical and it allows players to focus on the one thing. However, for me, there was no research behind it. There, there was mm. no reasoning yeah. to doing it other than it's logical. Again, we're back to, oh, it makes perfect sense. So it must be correct. And, you know, we're not, we're not rejecting the idea of these either. We are suggesting that and challenging coaches. Can we design sessions so that we're giving more autonomy to the decision-making of the young players where they are so in identifying gaps and they want to exploit them? the player has the opportunity to pass or dribble or shoot through the gap. And when they do that, well, that depends on the situation and, and the multiple other factors within the environment. And that's very much, it's kind of guiding the, their intentions, I guess. And then if you were giving feedback to players, what kind of feedback would it be based on uh, the fit football interaction they chose? Would it obviously okay, situation-dependent? Well, well, first of all, is that I think there's a lot of words get thrown around like guided discovery and all this. And I, I like guided discovery. For me, it's quite a powerful tool, but also a very misinterpreted one. Many people think it's just asking questions. It really isn't. It begins with your design, the design of the learning space, the environment, the session. And the, that's where the feed, the first feedback the young player gets is from the design It's from the session what's happening here and it's from how they act on that feedback that's maybe how you base your if you're doing any coaching interventions how you base how you base your coaching interventions but that's based on the coach's skill to observe as well so um feedback wise often it's about emerging behaviors that you might want to shine a light on. Yeah, this was interesting. This was good. Have you seen, have you noticed this? Whatever it was, this is really positive. What do you think, guys? What was the advantage of it? You know, okay, guys, I'm seeing things that are happening. Or girls, I'm seeing things that are happening here. Um, I'd like to challenge you to try and find space to receive ball, the ball with the foot furthest away. Can you find time and space to receive ball, the, the ball with the foot furthest away? So the... Emphasis on finding the time and space so you have the correct, not the correct, I don't like it, so you have a good body profile and position to take in information as you receive as you receive the ball. So they're the kind of challenges we're setting, and that's the type of feedback. And then, then they give, also it's always about the coach giving feedback. Really, the feedback that the children give you gives you a deeper insight into their understanding. 
as well of what they're experiencing. But it's very much coaching around emergent behaviors and skills and interactions that happen where the feedback and that's very much a coach-player interaction then. And, and speaking of football interactions, do, do, why do you use that term and as opposed to oh, skills? Well, it's actually very much a part of my PhD program. Um, I guess we, there's an argument that we use it to bridge this technique and skill divide because, you know, everyone speaks about football action and I've been in enough coaching courses as a coach educator where the word football action turns up and still coaches look at action as a biomechanical movement. And so we're using football interactions, which is just essentially dribble, drive, pass, shoot, movement without the ball, tackling, whatever, to try and give a deeper understanding to coaches of that when, you, when a player passes a ball, and it doesn't work, you know, it's not all. It's not always a technique that's wrong. Oh, there's some bad passes. We need to work on our passing technique. It's actually the interaction between the players is what we need to analyze. So when, when, when we look at football interaction, interactions, they're how players coordinate their behavior within a performance context, a game, training, in relation to that environment on the basis of not only physical and informational, situational demands, but also on the basis of historical, cultural factors. And and in, in that sense, that like you could say the skills also have history. So two eight-year-olds turn up at your training. One lives in the top floor of, of a of a 10-story apartment. His mother, a single mother works days, being looked after by his grandmother, rarely gets to go out. Another eight-year-old lives in the bottom floor. He's out playing every day with his siblings, his older brother and sister kicking a ball about. They both arrive at your training session and both have a bibliography of opportunities and experiences that have been afforded to them up to the point in time they've arrived at your training. So how they pass, how they dribble and etc. and their ability to take information, their ability to interact using football interactions it's also has historic there are historical consequences so it's, it's very important we, we we understand these things as well so that's why we're looking for a deeper explanation of what children actually do when they play and a deeper understanding for the coach why that pass worked why it didn't work why this dribbling works why it didn't work what's so the best players would have a high ability to connect perception and action select the relevant information and utilize football interactions for that situation. So that's why we at AIK we propose that training should include information representative, representative of the game to enhance the connection of perception and action and utilize through football interactions the relevant information. So players are searching for this relevant information and utilizing, they're interacting through their actions, football interactions, to come up with the best possible solution at that time uh, so it's quite uh, a deep <laughs> theoretical way of viewing but it, it does it is a quite a rich description instead of moving back to this reductionist approach of oh we need to break the task down into many different little parts and then when we build it all up again it'll act perfectly so you mentioned the socio-cultural history of of the player and and the effect that mm? that has 
do you then um, use that information? Do you get that information from players through talking to them through um, questionnaires? No. This is also the coach-player interaction, the, co- the player or the coach-parent interaction. You you know, it's about interactions. It's about talking to people. You can watch a kid who's... You can see kids who've had... Uh, been afforded opportunities and experience to utilise their bodies in many different ways, maybe climbing trees, running around, playing football. And you can see kids who haven't. And it's your and when the co- kids turn up to you, it's your job as a coach to understand this. And then maybe you can say to the parent, okay, does he play football? Or, no, he doesn't. And that's fine. You know, some kids just don't like to, to just hang out with their mates at home and not play football and turn up at football practice. That's fine. That's them. But at least you've got an understanding of that learner, uh, a deeper understanding of that learner. And then you, of course, in your practice, your job as the coach is to help that person and maybe inspire them to play football more independently of you. And, uh, you know, my, my son is six now and he's never been really, my three-year-old loves football. My six-year-old really doesn't care much for it. But he started school now and his friends at break time are playing football. So he's really into football now. And he wants to join a local team here and he's already done that and, you know, a football school. But for him, it's social reasons. It's not to be better at football. And that's very important, you know. Sometimes it's just about children playing football. is nothing more than children playing football and nothing else. Exactly, and and you spoke earlier about um, ex- external focus of attention, and mm. it's something that obviously I'd come across before, but it really piqued my interest when I was uh, reading your your blog. Can you expand on what you mean by that, and why a coach might want to use this? Well, very much the traditional way of teaching th- these techniques are the coach will show and explain and then show again and you do this with your foot and you have your foot like this and then at this angle and this knee is slightly bent and this way and then you just do this but really we're more about educating the attention of the players to focus on the information in the task so they learn how to learn to become skillfully attuned so that they can become more adaptable players and if meaning skillfully attuned you can say it's like a radio tuning in to the right frequency that's what young players are actually doing. They're kind of figuring it out and tuning into the needs of the game and the solution and what's best here. To le- so learn how to become more adaptable players. So, so in your training, you need to des- training, design, de- training design. There must be information available that is representative of the game. So while dribbling in and out of cones, yeah, you know, maybe there's benefit. I don't know. I don't think so. I think you become very good at dribbling out of cones. And, of course, there's probably some coordination value there. But you just become good at dribbling out of cones. But the information is not representative of the game. And, you know, as my friend Danny Newcomb, the, the Wales national hockey coach, says, he's just waiting for that when a kid to say when a coach asks him to dribble out of cones, are you mad? <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> you know, it's like because they're just looking down. So we want to focus on the information and again we're back to tag games kids are running while focusing on the information and we you can do this with young kids you can have eight kids each has a ball two kids are tagging and watch what happens kids will use both feet inside and outside drag back they do everything 
to solve the situation so they survive in the environment while somebody's tagging them. But they will do it implicitly instead of the coach saying left foot, right foot, you know, drag back, etc. So they will actually do this implicitly. I've done this with seven, eight-year-olds, and it, it's the exact same all the time. Because to survive in the game, they do this. And it's the, they're, ten, they're educating their attention to the information, which is like in football, somebody's chasing them, I need to identify space, where do I go? So then is it up to the, the coach to design the task that allows their atten- attention to be focused on those things? Yes, you're guiding attention. So you would say. So, hmm? so you could say then, if I, I mean, I guess part of the reason a coach might then reduce variability in a task would be to make certain actions or interactions appear, but the trick should actually, rather than reducing variability, changing the variability so that yes. those actions appear. Yeah, the traditional way is to reduce the variability and just reduce the task down, task down to the simplest format and then rebuild it all again and it'll work in the game. But that, that comes from that false assumption. You must learn the technique before you play the game and that's not really necessarily true. Um, I think, yeah, that's a good way you put it. That's very good, like adjusting the variability. How can I adjust the variability, manipulate the variability to nudge self-organization and learning and that, that that's that's a skill that gets acquired over time but also coaches mm. coaches have the right to experiment and and speaking of experimentation when when you're designing a task what what would you say the end goal is when you're um, designing task with the coaches you work with do you look at the end goal first no you know I think we need to be very more flexible in our task design in the sense that new information might emerge of what learners really need to uh, focus their attention on um, and how we need to maybe manipulate the task as well. So I think what's really important for me is that, that children and even coaches understand that they will never stop learning what to do with their skills. It's just an ongoing process. I, I don't think there's a real end goal. The ideas of end goals often appear in these um, sequential step-like coach education curriculum programs where by the time of eight, a child should be able to dribble with the outside and inside of his foot. By the time of nine, with the outside and inside of both feet. By the time, This is really, really not how we humans learn. We don't even learn to walk that way, so why do we, should we learn to play football that way? I totally agree. It's that idea that you can't predict what the end goal of a session is going to be. You can predict yeah. some parts, yeah, but, but you're never going to know exactly what's going to happen, do you? Yeah, but that's, that's, this is a very important point you made and, uh, make because this is quite uh, one of these culturally resilient beliefs we have is that, that we can actually predict the future, that if we do this now, this will happen in the future. If I teach, if I, the coach, teach the kid this, they will be able to do this next week or in the future. And that's not really how it works. You know, that's that's kind of fine for complicated systems like an iPhone or something where you can just put in information and the input equals the output. But with complex adaptive systems, when we ask what what is football at AIK, complex adaptive systems, 
the sum of the parts don't, you know, it's like the input is a small input can create a huge output. A big input can create a small output. That's the non-linearity of complex adaptive systems as well. But we're treating humans like complicated systems. We assume that if we program in something, then this will come out. Exactly this. That's a really interesting point because a new school is actually opening up in Sydney just around the corner from me and uh, they're, they're bringing an idea uh, brought about by a educational um, researcher, Stephen Heppel. And the idea of the school is to be stage, not age. So rather than your linear mm-hmm. year 7, year 8, year 9, year 10, year 11, year 12, that based on the student's level of learning, of ability, uh, a, kindy, a kindergarten student could be in a class of year 3 students. Do you think this should or could apply to football and probably doesn't occur enough where players of different ages are playing mm. together? Um, yes, of course it occur- could occur and it probably has been occurring for quite a long time until we decided to hyper-organise child youth sport into ages and stages. Um, it's happened on the street in backyard games in Australia where different ages play together, it's been quite an, a natural learning environment for many, many years. Um, I think peer learning is very important. I think learning from older and younger people is extremely important. In coaching, we do it. And, and the adult life, we do it. Um, I, and, and again, I think this ages and stages thing of you're born in 2010, so you play with 2010, you're born in 2010, you play with 2009. Yeah, you know, it's fine because it, it works. It's really out of administrative needs. It's about administrating child sport, much of this. It's, and it kind of stems, I think, from the Industrial Revolution, from this Tayloristic view of, of, of the world, you know, the scientific method of Taylorism. And it, it kind of stems from that era when really there is really there is really good value, I think, in different age groups uh, working and playing with each other. I know Paul McGuinness, who you, who works at the English FA. Um, now he was at Man United for many years in the academy, and and he speaks a lot about this when they used to have this cage where players used to just turn up and play, and it could be like Rashford as a twelve-year-old playing with a sixteen-year-old Pogba. And he said it was very important for them that they just, the coaches sat back and drank their coffee and kind of just got on with their daily routines while these kids played. And he said, in many ways, he thinks that was just a valuable learning environment as anything else they did in the academy. So there is great value. But it's also, you know, there's nothing wrong with having kids that are the same age. But also, I think we need to have variation. Again, again, it's just, um, we're back to this idea of variation, variability. I agree, and it would have been fantastic to see a twelve-year-old Rashford v a sixteen-year-old Pogba. It would have been a very interesting one v one game. I would expect. You also said in the article that um, you want to develop players with a better understand in the game rather mm. than just of the game. What do you mean by in the game, and how can you of achieve it through Tark's design? Mm. Well, of understanding of the game is good if you want to uh, get a job on TV and become a, 
analyst. Uh, but just because you can analyze a game, and I'm quite sure you know many people who can play football are very good at analyzing a game, that does not mean you can play the game. Just because you can do, you know, the same way, just you can do some fantastic things with a ball doesn't necessarily mean you can play a game either. But understanding in the game is different. That means you show through your utilization of football interactions that you have an understanding for the information available in the environment and you know how to best exploit that information for the needs of the team to progress and, I guess, win. So in the game, it's more probably a more implicit understanding of the game then of course that's more analytical and there's nothing wrong with with young kids understanding both but i think in the game is priority over of the game in, in child sport i think and going on from that one of the most interesting points you made in the article is that uh, if you're stepping into the learning process then you better add value uh that statement for me reading that blog has really made me reflect as a coach on what I say, how I say it, and when I say it in my sessions. Can you elaborate uh, on why coaches need to be adding value when they, they step into a session and how? Okay, I, I can give you an example. Um, I was giving a, a coach education course for the FA here, the first level, I think it was over two years ago. And then we had a, we were having a coffee break, and I looked out the window, and these seven-year-olds were running onto the pitch for what probably looked like a training session. And there was no coaches; they just ran onto the pitch with a load of footballs. They kind of self-organized into these two v two games, three v two games, whatever. There was just loads of little mini games going on. And I was I was going, wow, this is cool, you know. And then of course the coaches arrived, and what do you think happens? They blow the whistle. They get everyone in, and then they start organizing the training. Now, they did quite a good session, but did they add value to what was already happening? And that's what I mean. Did the coaches, that what could they have done? Maybe they could have gone, okay, this is happening here, this is happening here. Okay, let's develop this, let's push this, let's work this. You understand? So, so I think that my question would have been to those coaches, did you add value to what was already happening? It's a very interesting point, and I guess then if you go back to your earlier point that the game is not always a teacher, those 2v2s, were they going to be enough? But then the, the coach can then add value by adding certain constraints. And he, yeah, he can manipulate the space. He can add maybe a rule in or something, maybe put, okay, you two there, you, you, this group here. We're going to get together, we're going to play a, small, a little bigger game now here, doing this. So there, there are many different ways the coach could have, could have acted. And the thing is, the session they did was quite good anyway, but did they add value? In your sessions, do you then reflect on that point, on whether you've Absolutely. added value? And I guess then, as a coach, how do you measure that? Yeah, that's, it's very hard. It's, it's a very, very hard thing to do, but that's just mainly I use as a self-reflection mechanism. And, and, to and that, think more critically about what I'm doing. Yeah, and I, and I found that's what I've been s starting to do. And hey, did I add value? Do Do you ever yeah, use video to record your sessions to then? Yeah, reflect? well, actually, definitely. And and what what I do is um, when we have extra training at AIK, um, 
we we invite in kids on an extra day if they want, particularly the, the nine and ten year olds, for one hour, and I film a lot of the sessions, even when I'm coaching. So, and what I do then is I send it to the parents, and with a, a description of what we're doing, what were the important things. And what's really been beneficial about this, and I found this out from the parents, the parents and the kids are sitting at home looking at the film, and the kid is explaining to the parents what we're doing. And this is, again, we're back to these interactions, the club, the coach, the the parent, the player. And that has been highly beneficial, actually. So, and then it's also good for our reflection. So I've, over what's important, what we need to work, the principles, you know, okay, this group need to work more on collaborating. This group need to maybe take a step back from their collaborating, and maybe maybe need we need to put them more into more creative one v one situations within a game context. It depends, you know, it, it depends on what's happening, and it's just again we're back to nudging self organization, you know, nudging the learning process. And you also mentioned in the article that learning is continuous. And uh, in an earlier episode, we spoke to Jordi Fernandez, and he called it learning to learn. Um, mm. Having the players watch those videos, I guess, would help them recognize that um, they'll never stop learning what they can do with their skill. Mm. Are there other ways other than the video that you help them recognize that? Is it being explicit, or is it more... Uh, self-organized you know this again is about the relationship and the interaction you have with the players um, there is nothing wrong with a player saying to that saying to a player ah oh, you remember that pass you gave there that was re-, you know and going explicitly saying to him, that was really good you know I thought you really did this well there's nothing wrong with that absolutely being explicit about some information is you know it's finding that balance there's there is no silver bullet or magic bullet to this. It's about um, it's really about what I call this this live space and the interaction between the coach and the learner, the learning space. That it's about that. It's very much about that, and it's about interactions between the coach and the players. And every player is unique. Some you know, and you learn over time how to interact with them and they learn how to interact i guess that goes to my next point if you've got players in a group then that you know uh, aren't grasping a certain concept yet the other players have is it something that you'll keep working on it to help those four players uh, understand what, what you're trying to develop or is it something where you have to move on to, to challenge the other players Mm. I think we have to rethink how we look at this. Um, like the idea of finding a kid's ch- uh, a challenge. I often hear, oh, my, my, my child needs to move up. He or sh- she needs to move up and play with better players or play in a year older. Because and, uh, they need a better challenge. And yeah, you know, if you're moving up kids like that, then the, they must understand that because of the non-linearity of development and learning, then they can also be moved back down. And that's quite a sobering thought for some parents when they think that their 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old is so good, they need to move up. 
And yes, it might be a good decision to do that. It depends on the interactions and the relationships with the parents, the player, the club and the coach. But I think there is also a far better challenge available for for the long-term development of the person here. And what I mean by that is that staying within the group, uh, developing empathy, learning about empathy, working with the players, this better player, understanding that his teammates need his help and actively helping his players, become his teammates, his friends become better. Uh, the idea of I'm not at my best until you're at your best. Now, in traditional early academy environments, these, especially these that adopt this yearly selection, deselection philosophy, and then when we think about that, this we can talk about disrespecting non-linearity of human learning and development when we look at this. Way. Kids seem to learn to compete within the team, compete with each other within the team, with their own teammates, to, to because they know they have to be picked next year. When really we should be creating a learning environment where they learn to collaborate, to compete, to eventually win. Because this is what you have to do at the top level of football. You have to learn how to collaborate, to compete and to win. And I think that also there is great value in that better player to, to, to actually be in the environment where his teammates are, a few teammates are struggling. And you can, as a coach, kind of work with this player. Okay, how can you actually help your teammates here? And it's also it's developing empathy. It's such an important um, aspect that we never ever talk about in coach education I think the, and again there is no clear correct answer here but there are many many learning opportunities for the player the coach and the parent in the club a very interesting take and I've, I've never heard someone explain it well yeah if they go up they've also got to recognise that they may have to come back down and it would be an interesting conversation then with with, with a parent. Yeah. You mentioned before you didn't want to go into an argument or a, a debate about isolated and game-based training, and mm -hmm. I completely agree with that. However, I did come across an interesting tweet um, that, that you made on Twitter, and it was about goalkeepers, and I, I was intrigued because as a coach of a men's team, I've always struggled at having the goalkeeper fully involved in the session mm. rather than goalkeepers just doing a separate thing. And basically your question was, surely the whole point of being a goalkeeper is based on the quality of interactions between goalkeeper, teammates and opponents, as in mm. other players that are not goalkeepers. Can you just elaborate um, for the listeners what you meant by that? Um because I, th I think it's a really interesting part of the coaching landscape. Yeah, it is. You know, I did a blog together with the Swedish national goalkeeping coach, Mats Elfundal, about this. And he makes a great point. He didn't make it in the blog, but he said some. he often views, and he works at the Premier League level here in Sweden, and he was the goalkeeping coach in Sweden in the World Cup. And he often says that, you know, this thing of taking goalkeepers to the side and working with them, he sees that as bullying. Because really, they're just, you know, we, 
what 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 formation does your team play? Four three three. Okay, you have to only ten players. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we're already like there's a kind of an underpinned philosophy that we we play football with ten players because and a goalkeeper, <laughs> but really. If you look at mo- the role of the modern goalkeeper, they're a defender and they're an attacker. And they really have to have experience that simulates aspects of the game as much as possible, particularly young goalkeepers. You know, I remember when Peter Schmeichel turned up to the Premier League, everyone thought he was mad because he was doing these handball-type spider saves, you know, of opening his arms and legs. And everyone's going, oh, yes, bad goalkeeping technique, blah. Now everyone does it. <laughs> you know? So, really, what I was looking at the idea is that the goalkeeper, you know, oh, we're going to work in defending. So, if the goalkeepers could just go over there and I get the defensive line here and work in structure and formation, when really it's the goalkeeper's job to inform defenders and keep encouraging them through communication to work with this. So, I don't really understand why we need to... I'm, I am sure there is value, but again, it should not be the default setting. And would you say then, if you look at it from a learning design s- scenario, uh, by taking the goalkeepers away, you're then reducing the variability? Yeah, you're reducing the, it's not representative, really, then, of, of, of the task. Yes, you don't... You know, I've used games with target players who I've used the goalkeeper as target players because they're very often are that for, for um, um, what you call uh, depth. They play in depth so you can pass the ball for switching play. They are that. They, they're used very much for that in the modern game. So you don't necessarily have to have them in goal. You can have them in, in, um, in these target games as well. So uh-huh. that, that it's, it, there are many aspects to work on, but, I get really sad when I see coaches working with 10-year-olds or grip technique. And can it kind of inform the coach, you do know that kids' hands will be completely different in about 10 years' time or 5 years' time or 3 years' time. And, you know, this goes back to when I was doing my UEFA B here in Sweden. We were doing uh, the coach, coach it was the old, old course, which they've thankfully changed. The coach educator, really nice man, said, OK, I need a goalkeeper. And he pointed at me, Mark, have you played in goal? I went, no, never. Uh, okay, we're going to work on goalkeeping's goalkeeper's kick-out technique from the hand. So I'm standing there going, okay, and everyone's looking. So can you kick the ball from the hand far up the pitch? So yeah, I did it. And then I did it again and again. And he said, have you ever played in goal? I said, never. And then I started switching to my left leg, right leg, every second shot going from both legs. And he said, hang on, you must have played in goal because you, you couldn't have learned to kick like that otherwise. And I said, well, no, I'm from Ireland. I've played Gaelic football since I'm eight. And to be honest with you, because there's no, I feel weird doing it this way because nobody's trying to tackle me. <laughs> it feels really weird. And he said, what? I said, yeah, and how did you learn that? I said, well, you had to do, be able to do this. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to survive in the game. You learn to survive. <laughs> and it was kind of, it was kind of, and that was kind of an important moment for me. I hadn't never reflected on this, that, you know, I actually could, kick as well as any of the goalkeepers you know from hand and half volleys and it's because I played Gaelic football so again it made me question how we work with goalkeepers and then if 
if you went from the other point of view, playing de- devil's advocate, you could, the argument could be, okay, well, this keep, keeper is not getting enough repetition without repetition in order to develop mm-hmm. the skills. Is that then up to the coach to design a learning task that gives? Yeah, the- there are many ways to do this. Um, on on the blog with Matt Elfendahl, which is on foot foot blog bowl, uh, it's representative learning design for goalkeepers, and we have he ha- we d- there's a session that we designed together that he filmed with 16 year olds, and I've done the exact same session with eight year olds, and it's focused on goalkeeper. It's well, it's focused on many things, but you can shine a light on the goalkeeper if you want as well in this situation in these situations. So, and there you are dealing with repetition many repetitions without repetition. So you just scale the, the the game, maybe the size of the pitch, number of players, maybe your starting point, where the game starts from, etc. So, yeah, I, I, I think that there is much more to be gained from integrating goalkeeping training. And anyway, I don't think kids at 8, 9, 10, 11 should be specialising as goalkeepers anyway, so... And, and why do you believe that? Is that uh, because of their their changes physically? Yeah, and- I think everyone... What I we try to do is during our training, we try to get as many kids to play in goal as possible. And uh, Because there's a lot of other skills can be developed there. There's a lot of skills relevant to outfield playing and a lot of good movement skills. A lot of other... Get, they get to have another view of the game. You, can, you know, I've often put a young kid eight who's a really good dribbler in goal i haven't put him i've asked him to call goal and he really likes it and i ask him what how do you see the game from here you know what do you see oh it's much easier to pass because there's more space because i'm a keeper i can pass longer and shorter great well let's see what you can do <laughs> now you mentioned uh, speaking about goalkeepers about coach education and how it's changed over time do you think uh, there, there are still more changes needed in coach education. I, I personally would like to see coach education that, in like you go to a coach education course in football. I think part of that should be going to a coach education course with coaches that are involved in other sports. I think there's much to be gained from that. So you think that would be uh, one of the changes to coach education should be it, it's a multi-sport thing rather than. Uh. Yeah, well, coaching is coaching. I've, you know, I've helped coaches with floorball, and I've never played floorball, but it's an invasion sport. And I've helped some ice hockey coaches, and I've never played ice hockey. You know, and it's just coaching. It's understanding the principles of the game and designing through relationships, interactions with these coaches, games. And you can use the principles of nonlinear pedagogy, ideas around constraints, that approach to, to, to all these sports. So I think there's an awful lot to be gained with this um, knowledge sharing of knowledge, and particularly in rugby. I know I know some. I think rugby is, in general, is far ahead of football, or soccer, as we call it. Um, soccer is very much still stuck in tradition and you know you, you only need to you can hear this even in the halftime commentary when the manager really needs to get them up for the game now 
Come on, they're professionals playing in the World Cup semi-final. If they're not up for the game, they should just go home and not play football anymore. Exactly. It's a... you know, the manager really need, he needs to get into that dressing room and get them up. You know, there's so much tradition in football and stuff like that. There's so many assumptions, and this goes back to the start. The first question, the assumption of this linear linear approach to learning. If I don't do A, how can I do B, and then do C, and then do D? You definitely do 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 hear it a lot in the commentary, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and I hear a lot in coach education still as well from coach educators. If a coach was listening to this and they they read the blog about um, designing learning environments, and they they wanted to change their coaching to to use some of the, some of those principles that you've spoken about in the article and in this podcast. Where where would be a good first step for them to start? What would what advice would you give them? That you're going that you need to experiment. You need I, I would say start maybe a good starting point actually would don't think of yourself as a coach, think of yourself as a learning designer. And think it okay, how can I design learning environments? Okay, what's the game? What does it look like? And how can I design learning environments? And how old are these kids? Who am I coaching? Who are these kids? How can I design the environment for learning? That so it's so it, it starts to resemble the game. Um, we're often too often we're looking at kids playing football and looking for the adult behaviours, the adult football interactions we call them, when really that's not what it's about. I sometimes look at child sport kids playing football as a different sport than the Champions League because really it almost is you know so um, yeah look at yourself as a learning designer experiment don't be afraid of failing and be humble in your failure to through critical thinking to say okay I'm going to make the next session better because I've learned from this it's it's okay you know I, I I've come away still come away from Session sometime. Hmm. Oh, I could have done that a bit better. I think. What do I need to work on? Yeah, it's. I think you will probably find the same in the best coaches in the world as well in the Premier League and the World Cup. I think that that's how they that, how they think and reflect. A lot of reflection needed. Excellent. And and having had this chat with you, I'll I'll be doing lots of reflection. I've got lots of notes um, written down already more areas of my coaching that I want to explore from what you've said. Mark, it's been a pleasure and, and thank you for coming on ah, the show. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, what a rich and insightful discussion. So many take-homes, so much to digest. If you enjoyed the chat and want to hear more from Mark O'Sullivan, you can follow him on Twitter at Mark, S-T-K-H-L-M, or read his blog at www.footblog.com ball.wordpress.com and if you've enjoyed what we're doing here at Functional Football Podcast please share the podcast with your coaching friends and colleagues like us on Facebook follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Functional Pod and leave us a rating and review on your preferred podcast app thanks again this has been another episode of the Functional Football Podcast with Luke Harris. Get even more tips to improve your coaching and continue the conversation at functionalfootball.com.au or find us on Twitter and Facebook.